everyone. Happy Monday. Welcome back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Here's why you should tune into today's show. How much of a proof of anything is Binance? Pro Binance's proof of reserves report will analyze the numbers revealed and those that were not. Plus, we'll be joined live by crypto lawyer John Deaton to discuss FTX, Ripple, and other big legal issues in the crypto space. I'm Jeremy Varlow. Ash Bennington, as always, is with me. How are you doing, Ash? I'm doing very well. Great to see you. Lots of news flow over the weekend. Never a dull moment in crypto. You're not wrong there. We've got a great show today. Before we get into things, if you're watching us on the Real Vision website, thank you. If you haven't signed up there yet, please do so. Check it out at realvision.com forward slash crypto. Tons of free crypto and macro content there for you to enjoy. If you're watching us on YouTube, like and subscribe. It's incredibly important as we try to grow this channel. Let's jump into the latest price action, $17,000. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, Bitcoin is still trading in that level. It is virtually unchanged over the past week. Investors remain on tenterhooks as it's been a big week for financial news. We'll get to the latest US CPI re uh, report tomorrow. We'll also find out how much the Fed is going to hike rates on Wednesday. Ash, this is as big as it gets in terms of market moving data these days. Yeah, not much. We looked at Bitcoin, so let's also do justice to Ethereum. Ethereum is down on a 24-hour basis, nothing major. ETH trading around $1,250, pretty much the same range we've seen for the past two weeks or so since the FTX collapse, Jeremy. Thank you for that, Ash. Let's now jump into our top story of the day. The Wall Street Journal raises questions about Binance. It was meant to reassure customers, but has now raised new questions instead. I'm talking about the recent proof of reserves report at Binance. CEO Changpeng Zhao, or CZ, touted it as an audited proof of reserves, but some experts speaking to the Wall Street Journal say Binance revealed very little meaningful information. Ash, what was revealed and what wasn't? You know, Jeremy, that's exactly right. Over the past month, Binance has been trying to reassure customers and investors that it's not, in essence, another FTX. Binance has publicized details about its crypto wallet addresses. It also hired an outside accounting firm to prepare a proof of reserves. The company says that it proves that it has funds to cover assets on a one-to-one -one basis. However, the Wall Street Journal says the report covers only a small set of financial data. It was carried out by an affiliate of the French accounting firm Mazars. The reserves report runs five pages, but contains only three numbers. Uh, as the journal puts it, quote, the letter wasn't an audit report, didn't address the effectiveness of the company's internal financial reporting controls, and Mazars did not express an opinion or an insurance conclusion, meaning it wasn't vouching for those numbers. Mazars told the journal it performed the work using, quote, agreed upon procedures requested by Binance, and that, quote, we make no representation regarding the appropriateness of the procedures, end quote. The journal says the report didn't show total assets or total liabilities. Instead, its scope was limited only to Bitcoin assets and Bitcoin liabilities. Binance says it will be releasing information about other coins later. Look, let's look at these three numbers in the Mazars report, all of which were denominated once again in BTC. One number was labeled customer liability report balance. It showed a balance of nearly 598,000 Bitcoin. Another number was labeled asset balance report. It showed a balance of around 582,000 Bitcoin. So based on that, Bitcoin liabilities were 3% greater than Bitcoin assets. That's a shortfall of some $245 million at the time of the report, nearly a quarter of a billion dollars, which was November 22nd. However, the third number, 
paints a different picture. It was labeled net liability balance, excluding in-scope assets lent to customers. That figure was nearly 578,000 Bitcoin. Binance says that it lets customers borrow crypto assets through loans or margin accounts. Based on that number, the assets outweigh the liabilities. Here's an interesting take on this from John Reed Stark. This is also from the Wall Street Journal. He's a former SEC official where he ran the Office of Internet Enforcement. Stark says, quote, Binance's proof of reserves report doesn't address effectiveness of internal financial controls, doesn't express an opinion or assurance conclusion, and doesn't vouch for the numbers. I worked at SEC for 18 plus years. This is how I define red flag. Obviously, very strong words, Jeremy, from this SEC official. Yeah, strong words indeed. Now, Ash, I went to business school, and I'm going to be honest here, accounting was not my favorite course. There's a lot of accounting detail in this note. What's the big picture? Why does this matter? Yeah, that's exactly right. Sometimes it's easy to lose the forest for the trees here. Look, I would say if you're looking at this really big picture, the answer is the following. These are not decentralized entities. Exchanges are not decentralized entities. They aren't fully regulated and they don't follow the same accounting standards uh, as you see for traditional financial institutions, traditional broker dealers, investment banks. Uh, so, you know, we're kind of in almost a limbo state here uh, before the industry reaches the point where it can become truly decentralized. Uh, many of these exchanges are located offshore. Uh, and this is just where we are. We just have to be realistic about it. We don't have the kind of transparency that we would like to see, that investors would like to see. Uh, and we're stuck in limbo for the time being, Jeremy. Yeah, certainly. And I'm sure there will be more to come of this, and we'll be covering it here on the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Another story we are following today, there's a, some exclusive reporting from Reuters. According to its sources, there are splits between the U.S. Department of Justice prosecutors as to whether to file charges against Binance. This is delaying the conclusion of a long-running criminal investigation into Binance. Sources say the investigation began in 2018 and is focused on Binance's compliance with laws on U.S. anti-money laundering and sanctions. Ash, this is potentially a pretty big headache for Binance, no? Yeah, that's right. The key word here, of course, being potentially great reporting by Reuters on Binance. Uh, there's no public statement yet from DOJ. So we're waiting to see if charges get filed. It would obviously be a big deal if they did, but they haven't been. So obviously the reporting suggests this is being gone over with something of a fine tooth comb by regulators, by federal prosecutors. So investors need to draw their own conclusions uh, based on this limited information that we have right now, Jeremy. Awesome. Thanks, Ash. And Keeping with Binance, there's yet another reason why Binance is in the news. The company suspended a number of accounts after it noticed abnormal price movements for several altcoins. CZ later declared that the price movements appeared to be, quote, just market behavior. Binance then reversed the account suspensions, and in another tweet, CZ said the company was aware of too much intervention. What do you make of this, Ash? Well, you know, Jeremy, in many ways, this is just another facet of the points that I made above. This is a new industry. It's not decentralized. It's not fully regulated. Uh, how much intervention is too much? How much intervention is too little? These are all questions that are being worked out kind of in real time. Look, crypto is very much a frontier market. That's a bit of jargon from, from macroeconomics. Uh, emerging markets are less developed than industrialized countries, and frontier markets are less developed than emerging markets. That's what makes crypto exciting. That's also what makes crypto risky. Uh, these are exactly the questions that the entire industry is trying to hash out right now, Jeremy. Certainly so. So let's 
on that note, we've got a great guest today. Let's bring him in. John Deaton is a lawyer and founder of CryptoLaw.us. Welcome to the show, John. We're looking forward to talking to you. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me. A big fan. Big fan of Real Crypto. Big fan of both of you. Awesome. Thank you very much. I'm going to let you two take it away, and I will be back shortly. Hey, John, it's great to have you here. Look, big picture, lots of stuff happening in the space, a lot of news flow over the weekend, a lot of news flow, frankly, over the last uh, month or two. Uh, talk about what's happening in this space post-FTX collapse. Give us your view of where we are right now, 50,000 foot. Well, where we're at right now, Ash, is exactly what you just said. I was listening in on your conversation, and, and you said, Inter what is intervention too much? What is intervention not enough? And that's where we're at. And unfortunately, in the United States, uh, we don't have regulators and politicians who necessarily lead in the first place. They react. And they always react to a crisis. And there's a danger when you react to a crisis, you go from not enough regulation to over-regulation. And that's the danger zone that I basically think you summed up just now. And so... Uh, my fear, I think about this, right when the FTS, uh, what I believe is fraud, was exposed, what did the regulators do? You had two U.S. senators who had worked with Sam Bankman-Fried who wanted to offer the DCCPA up immediately. So why would you, your immediate reaction to the FTX collapse be to propose on the floor of the U.S. Senate the bill that he was sponsoring, which, of course, a lot of people believed attacked DeFi and gave um, gave advantages that he was seeking. So that's the danger that we're at right now as far as regulation. And unfortunately, I think we're going to continue to see what we've been seeing for the last four or five years, which is regulation by enforcement by enforcement actions, and the SEC has focused on all these non-fraud cases that we can talk about while all the fraud-type cases are going on underneath their nose. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hey, I want you to touch on a couple of those points that you made uh, around FTX. Obviously, uh, no criminal charges have been filed yet. Uh, and of course, people are innocent until proven guilty. But there's been a lot of criticism around the behavior of Sam Bankman-Fried. Let me ask you this. Uh, you alluded to some of the legislation that Sam Bankman-Fried was lobbying for. One of the challenges right now is that it almost feels as though the well has been poisoned around that because of the nature of what happened with FTX. How would you characterize that, re that legislation more broadly? Uh, and do you think it was something that was largely uh, you know, supportive of the space or do you think it's problematic? Well, I think that just like everything else, Ash, it's the devil's in the details. And when you get into the details of that bill, there were there were problems with definitions and, and whether or not you can, how can you take a, a regulatory scheme that is built, basically a securities case, if you're not talking about fraud, it all comes down to disclosures. Well, how do you impose certain types of disclosure on decentralized entities, for example. Right. And so that's where the focus was. So I think that all intents and purposes, that act is dead. 
uh, and we're going to have to go back to the well and recognize what's been poisoned and and come up with a cleaner version. But it's going to be a fight. I, I think it's going to get darker before it gets lighter, unfortunately. Yeah, and for people who are listening, looking for some more details on this, this is the DCCPA. Uh, that's the Digital Commodity Consumer Protection Act of 2022 uh, that you believe is probably dead at this point. I believe so, yeah. Yeah. I, I want to shift gears here a little bit. Obviously, uh, you have a lot of followers on Twitter, about a quarter of a million folks who are following you. One of the things so that you talk a great deal about and in a lot of detail is what's happening with Ripple. Uh, lots of folks in our audience follow this story very closely, but not everyone does. Give us a little bit of context for those who may not be following the story, uh, what that case is about and the broader context, why it's so important. Sure. Uh, basically, the SEC... Um, is a claiming that XRP, the token that is associated with Ripple, that it is a security and that it's always been a security from the beginning of time. And if you read the complaint, going into the future. And I got involved, Ash, when I first, as an XRP holder, and, and for your audience to know, I have a higher um, investment in Bitcoin, much higher than XRP. I have a higher investment in Ethereum than I do XRP. But I got involved because when I read the complaint, I noticed that they weren't limiting the charges to when the Ripple company or its executives sold and during these early years when the ecosystem was much younger and there was less activity on the XRP ledger. That's what I expected. And instead, they went and said, even though we've allowed it to be traded for seven and a half years, even though the Government Accountability Office recognized it as a, as a virtual currency in 2014 on a decentralized payment system, and although FinCEN in 2015 said it was virtual currency, we're going to go back retroactively from the beginning of the time, 2013, and say all sales, including secondary market sales, that the token security. What that meant for XRP holders was that whether you have it in a cold store wallet or whether you have it on Coinbase or any other exchange, what you own is an illegal security. And that's something that's never been done. Uh, securities law has never been basically saying that secondary market sales independent of a promoter or company were also securities. So I got involved and I actually have 76,000 XRP holders from around the world. There's 143 countries, including the United States, who have joined together and we went after the SEC and the judge granted me to be amicus counsel on behalf of the SEC uh, long before Coinbase and everyone else got involved and we filed a brief. But amicus counsel, case, of course, for folks who may yeah. not know, is a friend of the court Thank brief you. that you're able to file on, on behalf of, of the broader sort of context of the industry to support customers and others. Basically, and my whole focus, uh, so your audience knows, was was not Ripple. You know, they have high price lawyers that can deal with them. It was the token holder of secondary market sales. Because, guys, if the SEC is successful and they're able to say the token itself, which is really just alphanumeric code, it's software code, that that token itself, no matter who owns it, is a security that has massive implications, not just for XRP holders. Because you could take that analysis and apply it to even Ethereum. You know, um, I know a lot of, and I'm an ETH owner, so, you know, nobody attacked me, right? I own more ETH than I do XRP, man, make it clear again. But the problem is you have senators, you have the, the SEC chair, Gary Gensler, now backtracking and saying, 
well, we only think Bitcoin's a commodity. So if XRP was deemed a security, the same analysis then could be applied to Cardano and to XLM and to ETH and all the other altcoins. And so there's huge implications by, by this case. And I think the misnomer that a lot of people have been operating on for a couple of years is that it's just an XRP story. It's just a ripple story. Right. And, and it's not because we've had Coinbase uh, along with other entities file amicus briefs as well. Yeah, very important context there, John, and an excellent explanation of why this matters. Uh, let me ask you this. One of the most sort of contentious and uh, interesting conversations to have, if you want to throw it out there, is ask folks, is ETH a altcoin or not? Uh, this is obviously something that uh, folks who are in the Bitcoin community believe is an altcoin, and people in the Ethereum community say, no, this is, this is, the, this is the dead center of the space. Talk a little bit about Ethereum. Uh, and how it may or may not be construed to be a security in the framework of the XRP conversation. Oh, great. Now, I've made it on a record to say that if XRP is deemed a security, then ETH is no doubt. And here's the reason. Everyone mm -hmm. knows that Ethereum held an initial coin offering, an ICO. It was a traditional pure ICO where you take crowdfund and you take that money and you build the blockchain. And so that is the definition of an investment contract, AKA a security where you invest your money, you're relying on these promoters and you're expecting the profits to increase and you're investing in the common enterprise of the Ethereum developers, the Ethereum foundation. So there's no credible argument that it didn't start off as a security. And XRP holders disagree with me when I say the SEC could win this case if they limited it to initial 2013 sales and, and when the ecosystem was just starting. What a lot of viewers need to understand, Ash, is that the SEC in 2015, when there were only a few Bitcoin miners who concentrated the, the, the real core of the mining, over 50% of the mining, the SEC was claiming Bitcoin was a security because that was the common enterprise, the Bitcoin mining community, and you're waiting for expectation of profit to go up. So you got to understand when you're taking 1930s law, right, long before any idea of blockchain technology, and you're taking a Supreme Court decision from 1946, the Howey case, which dealt, dealt around oranges and orange groves and agricultural processing. When you take that and you try to apply it to modern day blockchain technology, as you can imagine, it's not an easy fit, right? You're trying to, yeah. to put a, a peg, a square peg in a round hole. And, and that's where we're at. And unfortunately, we've had no guidance. But uh, a lot of people believe that, S that ETH because of the Hinman speech in 2018, when he said, listen, present day sales of 2018, Ethereum's not a security. A lot of people believe that that was a regulatory free pass, but that's just one person at the SEC who's no longer there. And mm -hmm. the real issue today is why isn't Gary Gensler comfortable saying Ethereum's a commodity? I believe it's a commodity, right? Let me make that clear. And why is Senator Loomis, who, who was saying Bitcoin and ETH were commodities now publicly say that maybe only Bitcoin's a commodity because they're saying that the merge, because it becomes more centralized and you have, you know, the, the more stakeholders that uh, have more authority and say over the platform, uh, that right. therefore it's become more centralized and less decentralized over time. And so ETH uh, really, if you're an ETH holder, like I am, 
you you should be concerned in this Ripple case because, as you can imagine, if the SEC were to get a total victory, they could turn around and make those arguments. For example, Ripple didn't have an ICO. They went through venture funding, right? And so there's there's certain things where ETH, certainly in its beginning, were more of a security than XRP. Hmm. You know, even though ETH holders would argue that that you know XRP. Uh, didn't become as decentralized. XRP holders believe it's more decentralized. We're not going to get into that debate, but but the point is for our conversation is there's a lot on the line with right. this Ripple case because do do people really believe that in the next year that we're going to get legislation that is passed by the Senate, passed by the House, and signed by the President of the United States, where it gives clarity to the market? I'm not an optimist in that. End area, which means right. that this decision in the Ripple case could give us basically um, the regula- de facto regulation. Hey, everyone, we're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, you know, you make a lot of incredibly important points there uh, about what's happening in the space. Let me just highlight uh, for some context about the four prongs of the Howey test that you referred to uh, indirectly there, because I think it's important for people to hear these again. Uh, And those four prongs are as follows. An investment of money in a common enterprise with the expectation of profit to be derived from the efforts of others. That's generally the summary that's given of them. Uh, You said something that was really interesting, and I want to make sure I heard you correctly. Uh, Obviously, all the parameters of these individual tokens, these individual protocols differ, uh, and there's conversation around what makes them alike, what makes them dissimilar, and how courts might construe those parameters differently. Uh, But I heard you say that if you, in your view, you believe if SEC finds XRP to be a security, that would also hold true for Ethereum. In other words, if Ripple is a security, so is Ethereum. Did I understand that correctly? Absolutely. That the SEC would make that argument. Now, I want people to understand, right. I don't believe that personally. I, I don't believe Ethereum is a security, but the precedent that w- it would have, the origin of, no, there could be no credible argument. And this is the truth. And, you know, if Joe Lubin was with us, I'd say it very respectfully, he could disagree, but there's no credible argument that, that ETH didn't start off as a security. Right. It's a very definition of one, the ICO. And then the question is, the SEC, through Bill Hemming, came up with this construct called sufficient decentralization, Ash. But you've never heard of that since from the SEC. Right. And in the Ripple case, the SEC litigated for two years, making clear that it was Hinman's personal opinion and that the SEC has never, this is their statement, they have never declared ETH a non-security. And so the point being is that when you draw those parallels and you and you apply that test, the same analysis could lead to, to a, a similar outcome. 
you know, this is incredibly important. I know this is detailed and very uh, sort of in the weeds for folks who aren't lawyers, but I just wanted to cover a couple of those points uh, in a little bit more detail here. So sure. you started out by saying that's the assertion that SEC would make uh, in the event that they were victorious in the XRP lawsuit. I think that's probably something that most people would agree with. Uh, but then you then went on to say uh, that you believe that there would be no credible argument in favor of ETH not being a security in light of the fact that the Hinman guidance around decentral, uh, sufficient decentralization uh, is not one that those uh, at the uh, commission have argued more recently. I, I suspect there would be a lot of people out there who would make the argument, a lot of attorneys uh, who would make the argument that even in the event that XRP is deemed a security after this court case, that they would believe uh, that Ethereum was not. But let me get to a point that you made because it, it speaks directly to those prongs of the Howey test. The notion that in your view, uh, Ethereum under those guidelines, under that construct would have been a security at its inception. Is it now possible that due to sufficient decentralization uh, or other constructs that might be in inferred from the direction that ETH has taken since, that it is no longer a security in theory? And also, if that were the case, in other words, if Ethereum were to be considered a security at the beginning, but no longer a security today, what would the what would the relief be? What might the framework for 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 penalty or rehabilitation look like under those circumstances? I know that's a lot of hypotheticals, uh, but we're just trying to suss out exactly sure. where this might land. Well, and and I may have misspoke. I want to make sure it's clear. When I said there's no credible argument that East not a security, I'm talking about at its inception. I don't mean yeah. today. There is a credible yeah. argument that ETH today. And we're going to talk about right now is not a security and there's an argument that it is right Be since the proof of stake this is what people need to understand this concept that i believe in that bill hinman and jay clayton the former sec chair put in writing and it's in the hinman speech on eth that once something starts off as a security over time it can transform into a non-security status that was the whole construct behind mm. Hester Purse's safe harbor provision, right? To give an out, uh, to give a platform three to five years, and you give them guidance of sufficient decentralized markers, if you will, Ash. And if you meet those markers, you'll be deemed a commodity, not a security. But Gary Gensler has stated, and we got him on video on my website. He stated that there is no case law that supports that that once something a com an asset starts off as a security it later becomes not a security like there that is a huge debate in the law the sec mm. is taking the position that there's no legal support for that argument now what of course i'm and others are focusing on is not the underlying asset what the securities law is about is about disclosures and whether or not disclosures there's this asymmetry and whether or not the promoter is withholding information that the investor doesn't have to. And so today with ETH, I think there is credible arguments that today it's not a security because when you look at the nodes and you look at the decentralization and all of that, when you bring that into play, it, it just does not meet where you have enough control. Ripple's making the same argument. That's what I'm trying to get at about the precedent. Ripple, we don't want to get in the weeds, but they control about 4% of the validators. And in fact, they were overruled when they wanted to implement a change. They were overruled by 80% of the community. And so they're, making, they're taking the claim they can't control 
the, uh, the, the network itself, that they, they don't have control over it. So it is sufficiently decentralized. The question is, what does the merge, does the merge, did it become less decentralized and do a certain amount of investors, promoters hold enough control over it so that there is a common enterprise? The real right. issue, the real issue in those four factors that you went over with your audience and the one that we're attacking in the Ripple case is that there has to be a common enterprise and the S and then XRP, you're not, you're not given any legal rights or financial interest to the company Ripple. It's right. just a token. So Ripple can't be the enterprise, common enterprise, because a common enterprise is when each side, the token holder and the promoter share the same exact financial future, if you will, in so many words. And so, but the question is, and I'm not an expert on proof of stake, but the real question for ETH is, did the merge cause it? Because when you look at Hinman and his speech, Ash, later in CNBC, he stated, my position on ETH is today. He goes, there are circumstances that could change later right. that could later transform it to where I would have a different opinion. And so this is right. really the gray area of the law that you and I are talking about right now. Right. A absolutely spectacular summary there, John. I know that we get a little into the weeds with some of the details, but I have to tell you, if you're listening to this, you've just heard the big issues in the case explained about as clearly and as simply as I've ever heard. Uh, so go back and rewind it, play it again. Uh, it's probably worth listening to a second time. Just in quick summary before I bring Jeremy back in, uh, essentially what you're saying in terms of the sequence, in terms of the chronology, uh, is Ether is born looking very much like a security in that it is an investment of money in a common enterprise with the expectation of profit from the efforts of others. Uh, then we get this period of decentralization. You get the Hinman uh, speech, the context of which is effectively that it's become sufficiently decentralized. That's the term of art here that we're talking about. Uh, but he makes this point, and this is an important one, uh, that a future state of ETH may no longer meet that criteria of, uh, of being sufficiently decentralized. And then with staking uh, post-merge, we have this question about whether or not it has become less decentralized. So you kind of have these hops, multiple states changing from uh, centralization, greater decentralization, then potentially more decentralization. Where does it land? How do you think about it holistically in the context of where it was and where it's going? All incredibly important questions. They're at the very core of these issues that will determine uh, the outcome of where we're going to see legislation and regulation land. Uh, Jeremy, fantastic to have you back in this conversation. Great conversation here with John, obviously. Uh, tell us, I know you have some more stories to bring us. I do. Uh, and you just took the words out of my mouth. I was just sitting here thinking, I need to watch this two or three more times to fully grasp what's being said. It's absolutely fascinating. Thank you, John. Another story that we are covering right now uh, is a bombshell that hit the crypto space and the crypto media space hard late Friday afternoon. Michael, Michael McCaffrey resigned as the CEO of crypto news outlet The Block. It followed a report by Axios that he'd accepted three loans from Alameda Research, the trading firm, of course, co-founded by Sam Bankman-Fried, and never told anyone about it. Ash, we at Real Vision were in utter shock when the story dropped. What's your view on this? Yeah, you know, a couple of points. First, The Block has done some great work. We've had folks on from The Block on the show, analysts, reporters. Uh, obviously, when we had them on, we didn't know because they didn't know uh, about this. 
there's a challenge here around the disclosure element. Obviously, uh, something like this should have been disclosed. I think most people agree. Uh, as I said earlier, the employees did not seem to know. Frank Chaparro is out on Twitter, obviously very upset about it, a well-known name in the space, uh, clearly very concerned about what he saw uh, happening there. The other point that I want to make, and I think is really important, is just the, frankly, mammoth size of these loans. I, I want to read this quote. This is coming to us directly from uh, the Block's own reporting on this story. Quote, McCaffrey received three loans in total, the first of which was uh, in the amount of $12 million and was used in 2021 to buy out other investors in the crypto news data and research provider. He took over day-to-day -day operations as the CEO at that time. A second $15 million loan in January was used to help fund day-to-day -day operations, while another $16 million earlier this year was used to purchase personal real estate in the Bahamas. So what is that? That's $43 million. That's some serious money. Uh, and I think that that is definitely an aspect of the story that has garnered a great deal of attention, Jeremy. Yeah, certainly. Uh, another story that we are covering at the moment uh, revolves around Coinbase. The U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear an appeal by the cryptocurrency exchange. Coinbase, of course, wants to halt lawsuits the company thinks belong in private arbitration. One of them includes a user suing Coinbase after a scammer stole from his account. Your thoughts on that, Ash? Well, I want to just read this quote from CNBC. Quote, the issue the high court will take up in Coinbase's case relates to the highly technical question of whether a party in a lawsuit can be forced to continue to defend the case in proceedings in a federal district court, even as it asks an appeals court to send the dispute to an arbiter. But this case might be the first taken by the Supreme Court involving a cryptocurrency company. Quote, it's the first I've known for sure, said Glenn Chappell, an attorney uh, for Abraham Bielski, one of Coinbase's customers who was suing the company. It may very well be the first one, close quote. So obviously this is interesting because it may be the first case heard by the Supreme Court around a cryptocurrency related issue, or at least involving a cryptocurrency company. Uh, what's interesting to me is that this story sounds very much like a traditional capital market story, not a crypto story in and of itself per se. When you sign an agreement with your traditional broker, your E-Trade, your Chuck Schwab, I believe there's usually arbitration language in that. I'm not an attorney, of course. Fortunately, we have John with us who maybe can add a little bit of context and insight around this story. Uh, it's a very fascinating story. And as someone who is engaged in class action suits, I have a particular interest in this, right? Um, I, I won't comment on the simultaneous, you know, going in the case while you're seeking appeal, but here's the issue. In, in, in the law today, we, the Coinbase um, class action waiver, which is sort of another way of saying arbitration agreement, the clause in the user agreement is considered sort of untouchable is what it was considered. And it was the, the gold standard. Basically, when you sign up, as you discussed, you agree to waive your right to engage and participate in a class action. And right. imagine what's at stake for Coinbase because right now, if, if you wanna sue Coinbase, you have to go through individual arbitrations. There aren't any such thing as called class arbitrations. And so it's going to be one client at a time, even if there's 10,000 of them. Whereas of course, when you can consolidate that and go into court and ask for a jury trial that gives the plaintiff's lawyer so much more leverage. And so if the Supreme Court were to ultimately find that the waiver 
is, let's say, uh, unconscionable. There's not enough bargaining between the parties, and it's unenforceable is the better word, unenforceable, then it would open uh, Coinbase and others for future class actions mm. that the traditional markets have uh, have found. And, and as you know, this year, the uh, class actions in crypto companies where there was a law firm that was pursuing class actions against competitors. There's a lot of news out there about how class actions sometimes yeah. are used as weapons. So it's a, it's a very important story. Yeah, there sure is. Great explanation there uh, to people who are not in a legal position. Uh, Jeremy, I know there's a lot of uh, interaction right now with this show. Lots of people watching, lots of people jumping in with questions. I hear we have some questions from our viewers that you wanted to get to. We certainly do. There's lots of interest in uh, in hearing John's takes on the on some of the ongoing things that are going on in the space. We're going to talk about uh, Ripple first, John. We have a question from Prosperity Fund on YouTube asking: Is settlement still possible, or is it going to full summary judgment? You know, that's the the huge question, and I know that um, there was uh, news on Twitter about a potential settlement on the December 15th. Let me first tell you, I have absolutely no inside knowledge of anything, right? Even though I'm amicus counsel, um, uh, do I believe there's a settlement on December 15th? No. Um, is settlement still on the table? Yes. But the problem is that Gary Gensler and the SEC is saying that XRP is a security, no matter who owns it. So how do you continue to go after other cryptos and companies and settle that case where you concede that today's XRP is not a security. And Brad Garlinghouse and Stuart Alderoni, who is the general counsel of Ripple, have went publicly on record to say there will not be a settlement unless the SEC agrees that ongoing sales of XRP, including the secondary market sales, are not securities. And it's just, I'm very... Uh, I guess, what's the word, pessimistic about a settlement. Uh, I personally thought that it would have happened by now. Uh, and if it was about enforcing the securities laws, everyone should know that it would have been settled. Ripple would agree that early sales of XRP in those very early years to those very early investors were securities and that today's XRP is not. They'd have paid a fine and we'd be moving on. But we have an SEC who's engaged in what I've described as a regulatory land grab where they want to get this entire market under their purview. And that's one of the reasons why it hasn't settled, in my opinion. Thank you for that, John. We've got a couple more questions, but very quickly before we sure. get to those, if you are watching us on YouTube, please don't forget to hit like, hit subscribe, hammer that notification bell, sign up for Real Vision Crypto on realvision.com forward slash crypto. Let's get back into some questions for John. We've got Gian on YouTube asking, what are the chances this goes to appellate or even Supreme Court? And if so, would this mean the SEC can continue its regulation by enforcement on other projects? Yes. If this case goes to summary judgment, there's a good chance that either side, both sides, will appeal. Um, even if it's a split decision where the judge says these early sales were offers of unregistered securities, but today's token is not. If that were to happen, you could have the SEC appealing part or Ripple appealing part. So uh, when you look at the Ripple brief, I described it as an appellate ready brief. It's written for the appellate courts. And so if there is not a settlement, I see this case going on to the Second Circuit and possibly further. 
And it could be, it could, listen, earlier we were talking about this 1946 Howings case. There has not been a case to apply this kind of technology. So a lot of people think we could get a ripple test, you know, five years from now from the U.S. Supreme Court. That's a very good point. Uh, a follow-up to that from Dave on YouTube. If summary judgment ruling is in Ripple's favor and the SEC appeals, would XRP still be okay to relist on U.S. exchanges during the appeal process? Yes, that's going to be an individual call by each exchange. You know, um, when you get the clarity of a judge saying the SEC is wrong, uh, that's going to give a lot more confidence for um, exchanges such as Coinbase or Kraken to then have the confidence that they have now some kind of clarity where they're not at risk of being called, uh, uh, being sued for selling XRP. They give them cover. You know what? That's an individual decision that they would have to make, though. But they could. Certainly. The questions are rolling in quite quickly here. This is obviously a very, very topical. Uh, people want to know your thoughts on the industry right now, John. This is great. Robert Luciano asking, "Do you agree with James Phelan's timeline for summary judgment?" He says by March 31st. Yeah, I don't see it happening before. Uh, March 31st, but it is possible because the SEC's, the judge is very aware. She granted us amicus status. She knows that there's tens of thousands of holders. There's been 17 amicus briefs filed in this case. So it's very possible, but you have millions of pages of documents have been filed. And so she's going to go through it. I would say the end of March is the earliest. I fear it could go into April uh, or early May for a decision as well. Thanks for that, John. Uh, another question from Ralph H. on the Real Vision website. So he says that saying there is no credible argument is and of itself making an argument. Credibility, <laughs> like beauty, is often in the eye of the beholder. What does John think the, import, the importance of the library case and the insider trading case involving Coinbase employees is to the definition of a security? That's a great question. Uh, you got some really smart viewers. Um, that's a great question. The library yeah. case was overlooked because, you know, it's only a $250,000 raise, guys, in a non-fraud case. And the SEC was saying that this library credit was being used as speculative investment. How many people do you know out there speculating on the library credit? Most people didn't ever heard of it, even professional traders. And so uh, the judge's decision there um, is vague on secondary markets, and it's something that may later be addressed. And so uh, that decision is being used by the SEC to try to convince the judge in the Ripple case that she should uh, fight similar. Now, the Coinbase is interesting because the SEC sued individuals claiming that there were these nine tokens were unregistered securities, but they did not sue Coinbase. So I just want your viewers to think about that. So according to the SEC, these nine tokens, many are ER20 tokens, that they are unregistered securities, but they're continuing the listing by the largest crypto exchange in the United States to sell them. Why? And I believe it's because they don't want to face Coinbase's legal team right now, which would be similar to the Ripple legal team, and these individuals where they can get some kind of agreement, precedent, ruling, it would be, it would be called dicta. It doesn't have like binding authority, but it would give them more ammunition. Hey, these guys sold unregistered securities. They admitted to it. Here is a consent judgment. And it, it's just another feather in the SEC's cap as it 
you know, launches forward more against other crypto companies, including maybe Coinbase down the road. Uh, here's the next question. It comes to us from Yabro Mike on YouTube. XRP can get clarity through summary judgment, but can the actual case still go on? Sure. If the judge comes back and says that XRP is not a security, or she says today's XRP and future sales are not securities, that's going to be clarity for XRP holders. That's going to give some exchanges the confidence to relist and XRP goes on. It would also give Ripple's businesses in the United States who are waiting for that clarity uh, to possibly join in. But the SEC could certainly appeal that decision. You know, will they? No one knows, but it would allow the SEC to then come back and claim, even if they lose against Ripple, they could say, well, that was Ripple's story. You know, this is a, a different XLM story. This is an Algo story or Neath story, whatever. And right. different facts, different circumstances, and we're still moving forward. So both the case could move forward and appeal and the SEC's regulation by enforcement uh, could continue. Yeah, final question. I should say, uh, before we read this question, spectacular questions here. These sound like maybe absolutely. Uh, institutional investors, maybe securities lawyers uh, who are watching this conversation. Just absolutely fantastic questions. Thank you for them, guys. Uh, and this final question comes to us from Prosperity Fund. Sounds like an investor uh, on YouTube asking a follow-up. Could the judge punt to the jury? Uh, again, outstanding question. Just so your viewers know, right now, each side, the SEC and Ripple are saying to the judge, that there are no facts for a jury to decide that here's our version of indisputable facts, here's theirs. For example, whether or not XRP has utility and, and people own it, not for investment, that first prong of Howie, but they use it to send money on the XRP ledger overseas, or they're using it for other reasons, right? Uh, the judge could say that non-investment use of XRP is a fact that needs to be decided by a jury. So I'm gonna reserve my ruling and we need a jury trial on certain issues. That is a great question and that could happen. A lot of people think it's unlikely. I don't think it's as unlikely as some lawyers think. Yeah, just spectacular questions here uh, today. Uh, Jeremy, These back to you. These are the best questions I've ever had, just so you know. <laughs> They're great. You've got a great viewers. That's what we try to do at Real Vision, and uh, and we thank our audience for that, obviously. And if I sure. may interrupt you, Ash, your summary, you guys should plug that. Your summary after you and I spoke about where ETH is should be pinned somewhere because that is a perfect summation of the current state of affairs uh, regulatory for ETH. Anyways, I wanted to share that with you. Thanks, John. Back to you, well, Jeremy. That's 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 a very good point. And John, I'm going to come back to you in a second for your key takeaways. And if you could outline that one more time for our audience, because it was very succinctly done. It was absolutely perfect. Uh, my first key takeaway is that we need to have John on the show more often because his insight is second to none. Absolutely incredible interview. Uh, but today we covered, of course, Binance continuing to be in the news. We followed the Wall Street Journal article raising questions about their recently released proof of reserves. The journal stating that the report did not show total assets or total liabilities and revealed very little meaningful information. We will, of course, continue to cover that. Uh, John made a really good point about when is intervention too much and when is it too little or when is it too much and that we're in a dangerous spot where we run the risk of regulation by enforcement or a more reactive approach versus understanding the technology, being willing to support it and being proactive. And then lastly, John thinks that if the SEC gets an outright win in this case against Ripple, then it could use the same arguments to claim that Ethereum is a security. And as per 
Uh, Gary Gensler, John mentioned uh, Gary Gensler saying there is no case law for an asset that was once deemed a security to later be deemed as not one, which was very, very interesting to me. I want to go uh, again to John for his key takeaways. And if, as I mentioned, you can reiterate your thoughts about Ethereum there. No, I'd, I'd want people to really, I meant when I said to go to Ash's summary after after we concluded that it was, a, I could not have done it better. And what people need to know about regulation is that what happened with FTX would not have been prevented by the, the DCCPA Act or, or the Digital Commodity Act. It is a case where uh, funds were co-mingled and, and fraud took place and theft took place, violation of the user agreement. That would have been prevented by the whether the SEC wins. And what we have is you need to contact your elected officials because the SEC has the Ripple case, non-fraud, the library case, non-fraud, Dragon Chain, non-fraud, BlockFi in that settlement, non-fraud case with BlockFi, Kim Kardashian, right? While they're focusing on these non-fraud cases, you having meetings with FTX and, and SBF and uh, fraud is being engaged. And so we really need our regulators to, to focus on what's important because there are scams out there. There are pumps and dumps and there, there are the FTXs or the Celsius and, and we need, I want regulation. I just want smart regulation. Thank you for that, John. I'll turn to you, Ash, for your key takeaways. Sure. Great conversation here today. Uh, my first key takeaway is to just sum up what I made, uh, the point I made earlier, which is that it's still incredibly early in this space. Uh, and that's why that we're having so many of these conversations. Uh, it's something that people should bear in mind. As I said earlier, it is still very much a frontier market, not even yet an emerging market. Uh, so it's something that people really need to pay attention to. They need to stay focused. They need to do their own research uh, and they need to take nothing for granted. I think a lot of the points we made earlier uh, are still very salient here about whether or not, as you pointed out, Jeremy, in your summation, too little or too much. These are a lot of questions that we're going to be looking at in many different contexts from a regulatory, legal, and compliance perspective. Uh, I would just say also on Ethereum, uh, go back and take a look at uh, what John said. I Apparently, I got it right the first time, so I'm not going to try it again. But obviously, many important points here about the, the nature of the, uh, of the current uh, enforcement action, the current uh, legal proceedings about XRP that are happening right now and their applications to Ethereum, I think incredibly important. Uh, I've never heard anyone do it as well as John did here today. Uh, so that's something that uh, I think is incredibly important. Go back and watch it one more time. I know I certainly will. Uh, and finally, I would just say uh, no criminal charges have yet been filed uh, in this case. Uh, so there are obviously a lot of allegations about what happened at FTX, uh, but we live in a country where people are innocent until proven guilty, thankfully, uh, and this all still has to be adjudicated by the courts. I guess my real final takeaway is to agree with you, Jeremy, that we definitely have to have John back on to do this more often. Most certainly. Well with that being said, that is uh, the end of our show. I wanted to thank John for joining us. Now, thank you guys for having me. It's been a, a, been a pleasure and, and uh, your audience and, and you two are fantastic. And so I would love to come back on someday in the future. We will certainly make that happen. Thank you again to Ash, as always, for, uh, for hosting the interview here. Don't forget to subscribe to Real Vision Crypto, both on YouTube and on the platform, realvision.com forward slash crypto. It is free, and if you don't subscribe, Elaine Lee is going to come down your chimney and put coal in your stocking. 
if you are watching, like, subscribe, hit that notification bell. And just a note on an upcoming interview that we are doing, we'll be talking with the founders of House of Goats later this week, all about their NFT project and recent drop around Heisman Trophy winner, Caleb Williams. You won't want to miss that. Join us again tomorrow. We have Ram Alawalia from Lumina Wealth Capital will be with us live. See you at noon Eastern time, 5 p.m. London, live on the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Oh,